Hi there, I am Jeremy Goldcorn, Editor-in-Chief of SubChina, and I'm here to tell you about a powerful marketplace analysis tool for investors that we have just launched. It's called China Edge, and it tracks, distills, and analyzes both Chinese language and English language materials about Chinese companies, business leaders, and government entities, and reveals the often hidden links between them. For our listeners, we're offering a limited-time 20% off the database subscription. Go to subchina.com slash ChinaEdge to sign up. You can find all this information and more in the show notes. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at the University of Cambridge Judge Business School. And today's episode features a discussion with Robert Fish, who's CEO of Incorp China, a boutique consulting firm that helps Western companies navigate the complexities of doing business in China. Robert has over 40 years of experience working in and with Chinese companies and organizations. One of the things that I really enjoyed in talking with Robert is his storytelling ability and how he is able to draw on his diverse experiences in China to illustrate some key principles that other businesses can learn from. Take guanxi, for instance, a term that is thrown around in pretty sloppy and one could even say somewhat ignorant ways when talking about China. Part of the issue, though, is it's just hard to understand the deep cultural nuances of what guanxi means without actually having spent significant time in China. But Robert's stories from early post-opening days when he hosted the Hangzhou mayor in Boston to more recent experiences negotiating with bank managers in Shenzhen to open an account provide evocative examples of the importance of personal relations and the human touch to business in China. Along the way in the episode, Robert also provides some very practical advice on many things, from setting up a wholly foreign-owned entity, or WUFI, and how business has also shifted in the COVID era. I hope you enjoy Robert's stories and learn from them. I know I sure did. Thanks so much, and enjoy the show. Robert, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you, Chris. I'm honored to be here today, and I'm very happy to be able to share some of my life experiences of over 40 years in China with the rest of the world. I've spent all of my adult life actually being a bridge between the two countries, and I'm happy to share. Great. No, yeah, really looking forward to, to learning about some of your experiences over those uh, 40 years. You know, in those 40 years, I mean, you spent time on the ground living in China. You have a business that helps, you know, Western companies, you know, enter China, you know, deal with a variety of the unique situations of localities all over China. You know, I guess I'd just um, like to start with a question of, you know, let's say a company comes to you and is interested in, you know, sort of entering China. You know, what's the, you know, few key steps to do uh, for a business to start working in China? Well, you know, we've, we, we deal with companies anywhere from 2 million to 500 million. And normally the key things that we want to understand is that they kind of have a business plan in place. And what is their reason for approaching the Chinese market? And what do they hope to achieve there so that we can tailor make the best package for them with the right kind of entity, the right kind of market strategy, and how to proceed and be more successful? Our greatest joy is bringing a company into China, getting them up and running, and then sticking with them through the entire process to make them be successful. As like any other relationship in the world, the U.S.-China relationship ebbs and flows and has multiple changes in what the rules and regulations are in China. And being able to respond quickly and accurately about what's happening in different jurisdictions helps us to guide them through. And we've got multiple clients that have started with one staff, and we've had the joy of building them up to 50 staff. Mm. And wow. we feel that we're really making a contribution on, on both sides of the world, that it's a mutually beneficial relationship. And, and it also comes down to very critically important cross-cultural relations. Right. 
Yeah, so a couple of things that you said there that I really want to dig in uh, a little bit. I mean, you one, you mentioned sort of jurisdictions. So, you know, really interested in like the sort of formal processes of, I don't know, registering a, an organization. Uh, and then also you mentioned the importance of cross-cultural understanding and relationships. And maybe we'll hold on that for, for a second, but that's a real important, I think, topic we need to discuss. But but first, like just logistically to to, uh, to sort of, register and operate a business? What, what all needs to be done? Well, there are kind of two sides to the process. And first of all, one of the biggest frustrations for a Western firm is that China is more relationship-based rather than transactional-based. Mm-hmm. Also, the local jurisdictions wield enormous power as how they interpret things. So the laws are passed in Beijing by the central government, what we would call the Zhongyang Zhengfu, the right. central government. <laughs> and from then it's translated and passed down. So, for example, in the case of Guangdong, that would go to Guangzhou, which would be the Shang uh, Zhengfu, the, uh, the, the, the provincial government. Provincial government. And then when it goes from Guangzhou then down to Shenzhen, that would be the municipal government. Right. And then even within Shenzhen, it could be a bit mind-boggling how the laws are interpreted in the Futian district of the Futian Chu <laughs> as opposed right. to the Luwu Chu or yeah. the Nanshan Chu. The different districts yeah. are very different. And the only way that you can know that, which again goes back to the concept of it being a relationship-based culture, is you have to go mm-hmm. in person right. and meet with the people. Yeah. How about as far as, you know, so you mentioned, I mean, many different levels and, you know, you know, at least like even just in that little simple example, at least five or six different places, you know, from, you know, provinces, cities, districts, um, whatever, you know, uh, how about the relationships that you develop yourself there? I mean, you have to go there, but, but is it important to have local contacts in all these different places if you want to do something in, I don't know, Harbin versus, versus Shenzhen? Absolutely. And how they select where they want to operate is critical. Mm. Sometimes you'll ask uh, an American company, where do you want to operate and and why? And they'll say, well, you know, we met somebody at a trade fair and they said they have really good relations and they choose some very remote area (laughs) that doesn't really stand the test of why you want to be operating there. Right. So it's important to want to know why you want to be operating. One of the things that's uh, interesting in China that most people might not know is that when you choose a jurisdiction to operate, we have clients that operate China-wide, and you can register in one city and still have staff in other cities. Mm -hmm. So that can be very helpful. And how about, I'd love to hear a little bit, um, you know, some of the stories that you, you might have. I mean, you mentioned going to places. I mean, I you know, I just, you know, sort of laughing, sort of recalling the, the many of times I've had to actually go to various administrative or, you know, security bureau. You know, I lived in Shanghai for a while. You know, you have to go register at the security bureau or you have to go to some various thing. And it's always, I mean, it's, um, I, don't, I can't think of the right metaphor, but it, it's out of some, you know, sort of crazy movie, it seems. Um, <laughs> well, love, you know, we, yeah. we, we, uh, we joke and say, uh, if you want to get a headache in China, you have to go to the Ministry of Headaches first and get it <laughs> chopped in triplicate. It's like a Monty Python skit. My, uh, right. I would like to get yeah, a, a government patent on my silly walk. <laughs> uh-huh. Not particularly silly. Uh, no, but it, it, it is uh, critical to have those relationships. So, for example, just before the pandemic, we were helping one of our Western clients from the West Coast to get set up and they were really under stress to get the bank account open so they wouldn't lose their business in China. Mm-hmm. Now, normally around the world, especially with all of the concerns about money laundering and anti-money laundering and KYC right. and CDD, uh, it can take two or three months to get a bank account up and running because right. they're not familiar with who you are and they need to dig into your background and, and to make all of that clear before you proceed. So what we did in this case is that this? I was dealing with Bank of China, and I found out where the boss was, and I basically walked in, 
And this is in a city and of uh, like um, you know Shanghai, Shenzhen, or small. It's a like a city office that you're. Uh, this, well, this this one happened to be in Shenzhen, yeah. Okay. And uh, I went in. I found the what they call the Hangzhong, or the the boss of the bank, the bank president. Yeah. And walked in and opened my mouth to speak Chinese, and he because there's a concept in China of Jedi and Kushi, of yeah. welcoming a guest and yes, being polite. Right. Uh, and again, it's about a relationship first. You don't just sit down and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. This is what we need, and you need to help me. Mm -hmm. uh, so we sat and we drank tea for, I don't know, a good hour and a half. And while we were sitting, getting to know one another about your family, about your history, about your background and where you grew up, uh, of course, being a frustrated performer, I was able to throw in some communist slogans that I learned from my <laughs> early days in China, throw in a little bit of Tang poetry, which always helps. Uh, understanding, having a deep understanding of the culture creates an instant bond and you get instant respect and they're much more willing to help. Right. So we went through this process and as opposed to kind of a Western setting where if you're in a meeting room in Wall Street, you get to the point, time is money, it's $1,000 a minute. Uh, if you try to use that approach in China, all bets off. So we sat together, got to know one another. The department heads randomly wandered in and out of the meeting. Hmm. And uh, rather than exchanging name cards, they all scanned my WeChat right. QR code. So I now have a WeChat group of Bank of China <laughs> from the different uh, department that's, heads. That's a valuable resource. <laughs> and uh, what, what ended up happening was that the bank manager, very interesting. I had talked about how you have to know the local rules and regulations. Mm -hmm. He had been just transferred from Harbin. Oh, okay. And throughout these meetings at the very end, he decided to admit that, you know, I'm, I'm just transferred here. We're going to have to rely heavily on my local colleagues because I don't really know what the rules and regulations are here in, 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 in Shenzhen. So you can imagine that if a well-educated, sophisticated career banker from one city in China transfers mm -hmm. to another and doesn't know what all the local rules and regulations are, how, how much less so would the out, outside world be able to know? So being able to set that up, we then finished our very elaborate tea ceremony where they have the special tongs to pick up the tea leaves and put it into mm -hmm. a special teapot, pour it into what they call the smelling cup or the Wunshang Bay, and then into the drinking cup, and then uh, getting to know one another. As the department heads came in, in and out and in and out, they all sat down and shared tea with me and mm -hmm. told me about their backgrounds and where they were from and about their children and about their histories. Uh, it didn't hurt that I was able to throw in some local dialects when speaking with the different people. So wow, a, little bit yeah. of, a little bit of Guangdonghua, a little bit of Cantonese, a little bit of Chaozhounese. We then in, ended up inviting some of the bank officials to have lunch together with us, mm. together with the customer. And rather than it taking several months to do the setup for the bank account, we were able to do it in, in just a week. So this mm. concept of building the trust, getting the relationships going, it is so critical to getting things done in China. So they, the, the, there's actually kind of an, an etiquette that they talk about. Uh, they talk about the guanxi, which is building up the relationships. And that means that you meet with the people, you respect them, you take time to get to know them. In stark contrast, just to compare and contrast, uh, I was called into Boston, to Federal Street, to one of the companies. They had the penthouse, top floor, you know, well uh -huh. established. And they wanted some advice about how to get things done in China. And they brought me into their meeting room and we sat down and they kind of looked at their watch and I could tell this was not going to work too well because they wanted mm -hmm. guidance about how to perform well in China. So I said to them, there were, there were, there were three um, senior executives, all women. It was a woman-run business. And I said, ladies, I would like to break with normal U.S. business protocol. You've called me in to advise you about China. I'd like to invite you downstairs to the coffee shop, the Paul Revere coffee shop with very fancy cakes and, and coffee and so on, so we can get to know one another first, because this is how it would work in China. So one of them said, well, you know, 
I have a Harvard law degree, but I had a minor in um, cultural relations. I guess I'm okay with it. So thank you very much. (laughs) So we went down to the coffee shop and they looked for a little bonbon. And I said, we got to do better, lady. I got a half a dozen of the nice cakes. And we sat together and I went around the table and I asked them about their backgrounds. Hmm. One of them was part Native American and part Irish. She was telling me about her history, how her family arrived and what struggles they encountered and so on. And and we went around the table. And the thing that was clearly very, very different is that the other executives who had been working together for many years, none of them knew any of the history of their colleagues. (laughs) So that you can see the star cultural difference. So critical. Yeah, that's nice... um... And, and did they end up um, sort of entering China and, and, and succeeding yeah. there? Yeah, Great. they did. And, uh, you know, I have, I've had several uh, experiences where I've had Western businesses coming in needing to negotiate things, and I've had to educate some of the CEOs mm-hmm. about how to approach the problems. We clearly understand that the solution is that you want to increase shareholder value, increase return on investment, we get it. That's all good and fine, but you need to use a different approach. Right. <laughs> We've seen multiple clients over the years come in and believe that whatever model they're using on the shelf in New York is exactly going to be the same in China. And, and right. we've seen some pretty bad failures that way. Yeah. Where the Chinese are very, very polite. And if they're not used to that kind of uh, very, very immediate, direct approach, mm-hmm. that They'll be polite to the Western client, and they won't say no, but they'll simply send them on a wild goose chase until they end up going home with their tail between their legs, wondering what happened. Yeah, and they think everyone's so nice to us, and and, you know what? What you know? That's yeah. But nothing ever actually ends up getting closed, or or um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, we had we had a very interesting case. We were we were doing some work for. Uh, in the old days, it was still called Amico before BP had acquired them. Uh-huh, right. And they were building the single largest factory, single largest investment ever in Zhuhai. Hmm. And they had an entire vessel of pipes happily steaming its way to Zhuhai without any import permits. So I mentioned to them that that, that could be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Typically, if you're sending a whole shipment in and there's no import licenses or permits, they would seize the vessel, you'd have demerge charges, you'd have penalties, you'd have black marks against your name and so on. Right. I figured that wasn't going to be a good way for, for either side to get started with this very high profile project. So the, uh, the CEO said, Robert, we need your help. We'll support you. See what you can do. So I went to Zhuhai, and I went to meet with the uh, district commander that would be known as the Di Chu Hai Guang Guanzhang, the district commander of customs. Yeah. And imagine trying to book an appointment with somebody like that would be very difficult. Right. So I went to the building, and I asked Laoban Zainali, where's the boss? Right. <laughs> they told me what floor he was on. I then proceeded to walk right into his office, past everybody. And I did it, uh, you know, looking like I really belonged there. (laughs) And it happened so quickly that nobody could stop me. And when I got in and opened up my mouth to speak Mandarin with the guy, he was so impressed and so pleased, he sat down and, again, we did the tea ceremony. And we went through the what the Chinese would refer to Kaoidian Renqing work, which means to create some human... touch. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that is one of the biggest challenges for Western companies in China is not wanting to take the time and the Mm -hmm. effort to build some relationship. Again, and I get it because America is a transactional culture. You can be successful just having a transaction, but that doesn't work very well in China. Yeah. Well, thank you for those examples. I mean, I think, you know, people here, you know, maybe that, uh, that haven't been to China here, these ideas of sort of guanxi and, and, um, and relationships being important. And I think, you know, these, these little stories you've shared are nice 
you know, bring that point home and I think really helpful ways uh, for our listeners. Um, another question I have uh, for you on, on setting up a business. So you mentioned the bank account, you know, you hear about these woofies, you know, wholly owned foreign entities. Can you say a little bit about like what is involved in actually setting up one of those? Sure, sure. There's actually two kind of separate processes going on. And the first process is the documentation handling in the home country. Mm. So the documents all need to be both notarized, which can be done by a notary public or a lawyer, and they need to be authenticated by the Chinese embassy or consulate in the consular district where that business is located. Mm -hmm. So that has to be done correctly. And our group in China would hold their hand and guide them through and walk them through how that's done. And then the other processes will begin after that is done. So we would then receive the documents. And then there's an entire whole nother set of documents that have to be done in China. If you were to be setting up a business in Florida, where I am right now, you would go on to sunbiz.org. Mm -hmm. You'd get out your credit card and in 15 minutes, you'd have an entity. Right. In China, there are 45 statutory declarations. So imagine if you will, you go into one of the ministries and it's hard for people to picture this if they haven't been in a ministry. So you go into a ministry and there is entire, imagine a library in a, in a U.S. library, an entire wall filled with pigeonholes mm. that have documents in them. And they're in triplicate in different colors. So if you want to start that process off for your U.S. customer, not only do you go into the ministry, you need to know which documents you need to choose from which pigeonhole. <laughs> so... Uh, it would be very mind-boggling. So our team would then guide the people through getting all of that documentation taken care of. So you the articles of association, uh, the shareholder agreement, and so on. And it's very important that the documentation that is processed in America uh, is accurately filled in that the, there hasn't been any changes in the board of directors and that the things match up. Because what happens is that if it doesn't match up and you've done all of this work, the Chinese ministry will reject it. Yeah. So what we do to avoid that happening is we would have the clients prior to sending us over all of the documents to scan the copies over. And we actually, it sounds crazy, we actually go wait in line and show the documents to the staff at the counter and let them check everything and make sure they're comfortable with it before we go through the process of notarizing and authenticating everything. So that, that, that's important. Another part of the process that can be easily confused is that there's always a concern about what we would, we would refer to as registered capital. Now, China, I think, is one of the only places in the world that I've dealt with that has two different kinds of bank accounts, including something called registered capital. Now, years ago, that meant that you had to lock up money in a bank account in China in order to have a business there. That's not the case anymore. So the concept of registered capital is simply uh, an amount that goes on your business license, but it doesn't mean that you have to send that money into China in order to function. But we normally recommend the clients put in enough money to operate for several years. Right. Uh, and, and the operating capital, you know, if, if somebody wants to start a business without putting any capital at all, typically the Chinese ministries won't take them seriously mm -hmm. and think that they, the, the, you know, if you're not going to put in any money, why we should, why we should accept right. your business license. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of that process in China, I'm going to give an example of how relationships and understanding how to get things done is important. I had, right. I had a client that was into robotics in New Jersey, and he desperately needed to get the entity up and running. They were doing some large consulting projects in China for Tata, the largest mm -hmm. Indian consulting yeah. company in the world. So I actually flew into New Jersey 
gave the client some coaching as to how to prepare the documents that would make sense, would be easy, and we could proceed quickly. I got on an airplane the next day. I flew into Shenzhen in time to go directly into the ministry. While my staff had their stack of documents to review with the people at the counter, the Fu Tai, mm. I actually went into the Lingban Jingli, which is the manager on duty. Okay. And we sat, and again, we went through the ritual. We drank tea together. We shared stories. I think it was quite helpful that I spoke with him not only in Putuhua and Mandarin, but also in Chaozhouhua, which mm -hmm. is another dialect of Canton province. So you become like a fellow lawnsman. You become part of the family. Mm -hmm. And he then immediately approved. And while my staff were queuing at the desk there, he came out and he said, uh, please help our VIP guests as soon as you can. So rather than it taking two or three months to finish everything and get it all approved, we actually did that whole process. And by the end of the day, I had wow. the business license in hand. That's that's great. That's well, well well worth it to your clients. I'm curious how, how much I mean, like you know, just sort of you know, barging in some ways into into some some Laban's office. I mean, how much of that you know you think because you're you know a Laowai uh, speaking you know good Chinese. I mean, you're sort of they must be shocked in in some ways. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think that if I didn't have the cultural awareness and the experience and speak the different dialects, there's no way I could do that. To the point where, when I've been troubleshooting problems before, we had uh, clients that needed to get approved for different taxpayer statuses. If my own staff went with me, and I went into their offices to get help, hmm. the normal reaction of the Chinese officials would be to immediately question my Chinese staff, who is this guy? Yeah. What do you want? What's happening here? Right. <laughs> so I have to tell my staff, and you know, some of them are lawyers, accountants, very experienced people, yeah, very right. sophisticated, but guys, you can't go in with me. It won't work. Yeah. <laughs> they have to sit outside and wait while I go in to, to kind of make the things happen. Yeah, no, so it's probably a lot more fun that way too. It sounds like it's sort of very interesting to actually be able to have, have these conversations with these uh, with these administrators. And and you know, I've I've tried to uh, help in in both directions. Uh, I had a time when uh, a delegation from the mayor of uh, Hangzhou, which was the the oh, first place right. that I lived, the mayor of Hangzhou was coming to Boston. And at that mm. time, it was during the period of Mayor Flynn. And China was then considered a poor communist country. No need to bother with them. So the mayor didn't even want to meet with the people. Wow. Regrets that now. Hangzhou, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, that's the, yeah, yeah. One of the senators spent 10 minutes time. And then when it came time for lunch, rather than what the Chinese would do and put out a big banquet and give you face and show respect, yeah and give you the best that they have, they ended up inviting this group to the staff canteen, the staff cafeteria mm -hmm. in the government center in Boston. Wow. And the mayor was very circumspect. You know, he didn't know how to push that cup into the ice, <laughs> for the ice of the Coca-Cola, because they used to drink <laughs> tea. And what he said to me is, you know, I guess they really haven't warmed up to us yet. Now, being very embarrassed because understanding the cultural implications of totally not showing respect and not giving face, I got a van and I brought the delegation back to my house in the suburbs of Boston. And my wife, who's from Hong Kong, made a big banquet. We had nice wine. We sang Chinese pop tunes around the piano in my living room and really just had a wonderful evening sharing ideas. When I returned back to Hangzhou, the mayor himself actually came to my little Chinese barracks apartment and picked me up in his own car. Normally, they would send a driver in those early days in what they call a red flag car, Hongqi. Right. That was the old communist famous 
car that you would see in old movies about Mao and others. And they would have the um, curtains in the car. Uh, but he came himself and he brought me back to his apartment to drink tea, mm. which was a very, very strong sign of respect. Because in those days, it was still a little bit uh, dangerous to get too close to the foreigners. Right. And then he invited me to his neighbor's home to also drink tea. And then they brought me to the Ibingguan, the state guest house, for a 15-course banquet where the foods are delicately carved. You know, the watermelon looks like a swan. Right. And the cucumber looks like a peacock and so on. And uh, they give, you know, they absolutely give you everything that they have to show respect. Yeah. Wow. That's that's another really interesting story. And, and very early too, you know, I'd love to actually just go back in time a bit and understand, you know, you mentioned you were there when it was a little bit, you know, would have been sensitive for the, for the mayor to be seen potentially with, with a foreigner. Uh, yeah. How, how did you first get involved in China and, and, and start working on these deals? Well, I, I, you know, my first exposure to foreign travel and foreign languages is that I was blessed. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston in uh, Newton. And my high school um, gave me a scholarship to go to Bogota, Colombia to learn Spanish. And it was my first time out of uh, suburbia. And I just fell in love. I was bitten by the bug. And then I went went on to learn uh, Italian in my high school from a drop-dead gorgeous uh, Italian teacher. (laughs) I used to sit in the front row and just gawk. And then uh, went to university thinking that I was going to pursue a career in Latin America, but China had just started opening up. Mm. And I had a course in great books of the Far East and just fell in love with the whole culture, decided I would begin learning Chinese. And I used to walk around the campus with flashcards, hundreds of characters. Is it early 80s or so? Is it? Yes, it was the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. And I, I, I would um, hang around with all of the Chinese students. I was the only American in the Chinese students' union. <laughs> and I was learning Tai Chi. I just really fell in love with the whole thing. So I was very clear on my goal that I wanted to go to China. It was a little early in those days. There were very, very few foreigners in China. Right. And I graduated school. Uh, went to work in Boston. I couldn't get a job quite yet in China. I was still looking. So I got a job in Chinatown Hmm. in Boston, teaching English to Southeast Asian refugees, including many ethnic Chinese. Hmm. And it was a good cultural learning experience as well, because I went into class and these were families who had seen their relatives wiped out. Cambodia, Laos, the killing fields, Vietnam, and so on. They still had a desire to learn, which was quite inspiring. And in the middle of class, they would get up and erase the blackboard and pour me tea. Mm. And I would feel embarrassed. I didn't really know what was going on. I wasn't quite so aware. I hadn't lived in China yet. I said, mellow out, boys. I can take care of it. Mm. (laughs) And they were just trying to do the respect routine, right? Right, yeah. And at the same time, I started hosting some Chinese delegations for the Route 128 high technology strip there. I convinced them if you want to do business with China, because China began sending scientists to to America, that you needed to have somebody who understood the culture. So I became the bridge over there. Hmm. And and finally, my first place in China was Hangzhou. That was in 1984. Hmm. And at that time... China was such a poor country that you needed ration coupons for your food. Wow. So they called that liang piao and you piao. The liang mm-hmm. meaning for the grain and you for the oil, for the cooking oil. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were no car- very few cars in China, mostly bicycles. And I had my Phoenix brand bike, Feng Huang Pai, and it was neither gong zuo dan wei gei fen pei. Uh, your your work unit, the Gungzhu Danwei, yeah. uh, would issue you fun pay your 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 supplies. So in this case, right. I got issued my Phoenix brand bike, and on my first day, and what was your Danwei? Uh, Danwei means your work unit. And those you know, days, but, uh, who, but who was your work unit? Yeah, I know Danwei. Yes, uh, that was called Zhejiang uh, Eco Dashui, which is Zhejiang oh, okay. Medical College. Yeah, right. I was working for a group called Project Hope somewhat similar to the Peace Corps. After World War II, they had a 
great ship Hope that would go around the world and people would come on the ship for medical care. And the Chinese mm -hmm. government invited them to have land-based programs in China. So I was their liaison and my job was to interact with all of the different Chinese government departments. So they, I had my bike and on my first day, I went out to a local noodle shop and that was called the Xiao Chi Bu. In those days, they referred to it as, yeah. a, as a small it's eating a unit, Xiao Chi Bu. And uh, you'd queue up with your ration coupons and with your foreign exchange certificates, because in those days, the foreigners had their own set of currency, Wai Hui, Wai Hui Juan, and get your steamer of Xiaolongbao, your steamer of noodles, right. uh, you know, small dumplings. Yeah. And you'd get your bowl of wonton soup. They'd count them out with a slotted spoon and put a little, what do they call it, the clothes clip to uh, mm. put your number on it so you could pick okay, it up. right, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, when I came back out, much to my horror, my bicycle was missing. Mm. And it was a big deal, getting a bike. Not everybody had a bike. Right. So there was a, an old woman with her red band on said to me, What's the matter, little boy? <laughs> and I said, what did you, what did you, my bike? She said, hold yeah. on a minute. And she went running around the corner and came back with a policeman. Oh. <laughs> and the policeman said to me, here's your bike, but learn your lesson, foreign friend. Mm. Do not park your bike in a no parking zone. <laughs> So I had parked my bike in a, in a, in a no-bike parking zone. <laughs> okay. That was the reason why the space was there, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, and when I would ride my bike, I would cause traffic accidents because you'd see people looking at yeah, me. Right. And then as they stared at me, it would be kind of the domino effect. Yeah. Whoa, there goes another 10 bikes. <laughs> uh, and at that time, there was really a concept of uh, human touch, politeness, helping one another. They had a phrase called sungrunja, which means to see somebody off. Yeah. So it was so important and ingrained in the culture to see somebody off, there was actually a phrase for it. And they would joke because if you invited somebody and they lived 10 kilometers away and didn't have a bike, you would bike to their place, put them on the back of your bike and, and bike, bike back. Mm -hmm. And they would say, well, if you're going to send me off, and the etiquette yeah. is I have to see you off, that would be called That means we won't be done Endl sending each other Endless, off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. Huh. there was some, uh, certainly there was some concern in the early days about mixing too much with foreigners. Uh, they had actually built us a barracks that we lived in. Mm. And... Uh, you know, being very friendly and open-minded. we used to, I used to invite all kinds of different people uh, together. There'd be artists, there'd be singers, there'd be dancers, there'd be floor sweepers, whoever wanted to come and join in. And that made the locals a little bit nervous. So they decided that they were going to enclose our compound with a brick wall. Mm. And they told us that was going to be for our own security. And I then had to have a meeting with the president of the university and explain that while we were happy that they were concerned about our security and we really respected that, uh, that the Western culture wasn't quite so used to being closed in. And we really wanted to make our contribution to the four, moderniz four modernizations, the Siga Shandai Hua and the, the Wu Zhou and Ji Hua, the five-year plan. Uh -huh. Wouldn't it be a pity if we couldn't make our contribution because our American friends didn't feel comfortably being somehow closed off. So it, it wasn't uh, a very direct no, yes. It was how to look at it culturally and mm -hmm. use Chinese culture. And we finally, they came up with a Chinese solution where they built kind of a half wall <laughs> with the glass sticking up and they posted a guard out front but that was enough you know kind of kept everybody happy <laughs> yeah. and we were able to proceed yeah and the idea of hosting a foreigner was so deep in the culture that i got invited several times to the village and literally people would meet you on the street 
and they would take you home and feed you. <laughs> and wow. uh, I had one time when I stopped by a street corner and I was speaking Chinese with one person and a whole crowd gathered around me. Uh, and and uh, I, I was a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I, I, I had to say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, the zoo is now open. Please buy a ticket. <laughs> and be careful because the foreigners might bite. <laughs> and, <laughs> it was an interesting time. But they invited me home. And then what I came to learn was because China was a, a pretty poor country, they would give you not only the shirt they had on the on their back, but the shirt that they didn't have. So they would borrow uh, a month's salary to buy a chicken so they could show respect to the foreign guest. And I was embarrassed by that. It was a little bit painful to see people right. contorting themselves for me. So I made sure that when I went back to the village to visit, that I didn't let them know that I was coming. So that wouldn't happen. Yeah, no. Uh, so a, a, a very, very different uh, dynamic. And one of the joys of working in China even now is that while we have technology absolutely exploding, you know, the, the hub of high tech in China is Shenzhen. So you have, mm -hmm. you know, companies like Tencent, other high tech companies, Foxcom and so on. Even though they have WeChat and you can control your whole life on WeChat, even the, even the street vendor that you buy an apple from doesn't want renminbi. They'll scan you. Even the guy who you get on the back of his bike to weave through the traffic to get to the ferry terminal, he doesn't want renminbi. They'll scan you. But there's still a concept of getting to know one another first. So when some of my largest tech clients were approaching the China market, I had to, again, explain to them, it's, it's wonderful that you're good at Java and coding and all things IoT and so on. That's great. But if you can't make a relationship with the people first, that's all going to be meaningless. You have to build that relationship first. And then, then those things can come into play. Um, one of our fastest growing clients now is a company called Jungle Scout that's actually assisting the local Chinese on how to sell better on Amazon. So oh, what, an okay. what, what an interesting world we live in, right? That yeah. you, you see the saber rattling here and there, but the Chinese are as hungry to get digitally into America and vice versa. You know, it's a new mm -hmm. stage in the, in the relationship that I see has got huge potential. And during the pandemic, they hired 50 new staff in China. Wow. And again, we were there to help guide them through the setup. I actually went in person with the their chief to the bank to use my relationships to get things mm -hmm. up and running, go in and drink tea and, and so on, and try to guide them in the approach to 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 building that relationship that uh I'm happy that this concept of respecting other cultures and in my personal case, respecting the fact that I know so much about China is still useful. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's been more useful now than ever, I think. You know, it's really, yeah. You know, I, so, I sometimes get concerned with the saber rattling if I won't be quite as welcome as I used to be, but I, I, I think right. it should be okay. I was put to the test when I had a uh, client having some trouble in China during the pandemic, and I actually had never done that before. I had to try to do the remote guanxi. Right. right. So I had I had gone into the bank to meet the bank chief when we were setting up. Wonderful woman. Her one son was in San Francisco. Another one was in Tokyo. You know, well-heeled travelers who know their stuff. But we sat and just had a, a great time getting to know one another, and we were able to set things up quickly. Now, when there was some trouble with some due diligence going on, and the uh, Western client wasn't so clear about what it was all about. And they were worried about intellectual property. And I can't share this and I can't share that. Not knowing. Uh, there was some tension coming up that if we couldn't provide all the proper information that they were going to freeze the bank account. Mm. So I was able to 
from my old friend, and that was from four or five years ago. She still remembered our encounter where we sat and drank tea together. Mm. She then said, I've been promoted to a senior level. I'm no more in that branch. I'm more national. But she then introduced me to her colleague from WeChat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I had to text in my Chinese first with the WeChat right. and get her phone number. So I, I, you know, then I could call and we could talk. And she said she wasn't the daily caseworker. She was the branch manager. She put me to the caseworker who said, okay, I'm in charge, but you need to speak to the woman behind the counter. <laughs> So I was up all night in America right. yeah. doing the guanxi from my old friends till I finally got through to the lady behind the counter and I was able to get things cleared up. Good. So that, that was actually where I was going. I mean, it's, you know, the, the example you gave about the client who's helping Chinese uh, work with Amazon suggests that in some ways in the pandemic, I mean, there's areas of business that actually probably are thriving. Um, and all the personal relationships you're mentioning, you know, it sounds like it's harder um, would be harder to do that if you can't be there in person. But it sounds, you know, it sounds like there's some cases you're able to actually do it over the phone, even though it is time time difference makes it hard. But um, have you seen other sort of things change in the pandemic as far as your relationship building? Yeah, well, I, um, I have actually pulled it off before that I did a factory visit virtually, which is kind of tough. Oh. <laughs> we had clients that were manufacturing, and what I was able to do was to get the client, the factory owner on the other side to take his phone with mm -hmm. WeChat video call and walk the factory floor as I asked him questions. Okay. So we try to be creative. But I think that there are several areas that really are expanding. And one of them that I've seen quite busy has been the concept of internet licensing. They call that an ICP license. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in order to engage digitally in the Chinese marketplace, you need to do everything as if you're competing with a local Chinese digital marketing situation. Mm -hmm. So that would include, first of all, you need to have your own entity. And we've seen over and over again, people try to piggyback on somebody else's license. So the, a, a local company will say, it's okay, piggyback with me. We had one client that was in the elder care uh, field they were setting up nursing homes in China. And they followed this idea that, oh, our partner will help us do this and that. And what ended up happening before too long is that that Chinese company, because they had piggybacked to get the internet license, the American company didn't own the intellectual property. And that company started marketing using their name. Okay. Uh. And there was nothing they could do. <laughs> uh because they didn't have their own entity set up. And we've had mm -hmm. other clients try to do it on the side and underneath and up above and down. It just doesn't work. You have to have a Chinese URL, a Chinese website, a Chinese server, a Chinese host. Uh, you hear stories about, oh, I'll do it from Australia. I'll do it from Hong Kong and here and there. It just doesn't work because you're competing with other very sophisticated Chinese companies. Mm -hmm. that are marketing digitally in China as well. And Google is not welcome in China. So even if you had a masterpiece website right. in London or in New York, it's not going to work. It won't show up. They won't find you. So you have to have a unique Chinese user experience, making believe that you as are sitting in front of a computer screen as somebody in Shanghai or Beijing would be. And what do they do when they sign on to look for something? It's not the same as what an American might do. Right. And what things would appeal to the Chinese taste? And how do you want to interact? So we have actually, during the pandemic, helped Western businesses set up their entity and create a local Chinese website mm. so they could begin marketing digitally to the Chinese consumers. We've also had situations where big pharma in America, needs to have the ability through their contractors to upload and download clinical trials for patients to share with Chinese scientists. Oh. And the ability to upload and download data requires that you need to have a business license and you need to be approved by the Ministry of Information and Technology in China. So all of those things are, are areas for quite a lot of potential growth, I feel. Uh, it is encouraging, even in the midst of the pandemic, 
as Martin Luther King used to say, if you can't run, walk, and if you can't walk, crawl, but keep moving. <laughs> so <laughs> we've had situations in the different countries, depending on where they're at with COVID, where they're at with shutdowns, where they're at from working from home. Uh, things are still moving. And I give a lot of credit to my team to be very persistent. Uh, I had calls with my team in Shenzhen a few weeks ago when they were in lockdown and they were stuck at home with the kids running around and so on. Rather than the parents yelling at the kids to be quiet, I welcomed the kids to the talk and I sang Chinese songs with them. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, keep it human is, is so, so important. And, you know, I know you had mentioned before, what are some of the biggest mistakes that I see Western companies making? Right. I, I never would be uh, arrogant enough uh, to, to tell somebody in their own home country how they should act or how they should behave. But when you're going to another country and you want to be successful, you have to understand the do's and the don'ts and the etiquette and so on. And the mm -hmm. biggest challenges that we face are people not wanting to take the time to build a human relationship. And it normally comes back to bite them in the ass later on. Yeah, it, it sounds, I mean, these examples you've given are really great, um, you know, sort of illustrations um, of that. Is, are there any other, you know, like a company comes to you like the, you know, one is take the time, build relationships, um, you know, any other final sort of recommendations you'd have as sort of the last last word here, Robert? Uh, uh, no, normally what I try to tell customers is that uh, it's best if they have a business model in their home country that's already functional. Because mm -hmm. I've seen companies say, oh, I want to do a startup in China, but they don't even have the business plan working in America. That normally doesn't do too well. And right. the second thing is when you're looking to go into China, uh, why are you going there? And to have a clear vision and very, very important is to understand that China is a long-term prospect. Mm -hmm. You don't go in and then overnight you're a huge success. It takes time and there's learning and there's learning on the ground in China and learning about your consumers in China, learning about how to deal with your staff in China, which is a different dynamic than here. Mm -hmm. uh, all of those things are very, very important. Uh, and, and we approach our customers as if their business was my own business. So mm -hmm. my passion has been helping Westerners succeed in China. And uh, one of the biggest frustrations is when the people aren't willing to adapt or adjust and then you see them fail and you could call that it was coming. Right. Yeah. Super. Well, well, you know, really very helpful thoughts and advice. And, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed our discussion. Not only does it have good, good sort of ideas, but then also illustrated with some really, uh, really nice human stories. So thank you so much, Robert, for joining us on China Corner Office. Okay. That's my pleasure. 